Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Yo, what's up, guys? Welcome back to Beyond the Brand Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Pabuda. Be joined today by our usual co host, Alex Boudreau. And in lieu of the NFL season starting back up, opening weekend this past weekend, we decided to stick with that NFL theme and release our episode with former NFL wide receiver Braylon Edwards. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm a diehard Jets fan, and they have shown yet again that we're going to be in for quite a long year. However, having Braylon on the show was actually pretty cool because, um, you know, on those back-to-back AFC Championship runs when I was um, in my teens, early teens, I mean, I, I love those teams. It was, it was my favorite memories as a Jets fan, and um, trust me, there's not many great ones, but that, that, uh, that, that two-year period was a really a great time to be a Jets fan. So to get him on and kind of hear stories of, um, you know, those, those runs and those teams is, is pretty cool. And, you know, we talk about some other, some other fun stuff with Braylon <clears throat> in regards to, you know, just, just being basically um, an NFL, NFL wide receiver, um, both on and off the field, the perks of it, um, you know, just, you know, different things that he's done in his life. We talk about his time in Cleveland, his time in Michigan, uh, you know, then no fun as the Jets. And then, you know, just kind of throughout the end of his career. And then we talk with him a little bit about <clears throat> some of the philanthropy work and stuff that he does um, with his foundation, where he was actually going out there on the front lines in the beginning of, of COVID, of quarantine, and <clears throat> kind of helping uh, serve and deliver masks and things like that to people who need it. And yeah, it was honestly, it's a fun episode. I think you guys really enjoy it. Don't forget to subscribe, give us five stars on whatever platform you use, um, and give us some feedback. Let us know what you think. Bruce, take it away. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time! Recording out of New York City, New York. Welcome to the undisputed greatest podcast in the world, Beyond the Brand! I like the green. That, 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 that was the easy fix, right? <laughs> that was that was the easy fix. It's funny, I actually went live yesterday with Mike DeVito. Oh, did you? Play, yeah, played D-line when I was there. Oh, yep, yep. Yeah, I did a uh, same thing, Zoom, Zoom podcast. Yeah, brother, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Diehard Jets fan, as you know. Like the uh, green on you right now. It's a good fit. So, uh, We'll get right it's in. Kind of contrasting. It's like amazing blue on top of green and white. Yeah. But um, all right, let's get right into it. So take us a little bit through uh, your upbringing, being born and raised uh, in Detroit, Michigan, and where your love for football came from. Uh, born and raised in Detroit, West Side. Um, my father played for Michigan, played for University of Michigan, as well as in the NFL. He was drafted in the third round in '82 to the Houston Oilers. I uh, also played for Detroit Lions in '70 in '87, '88. 89. So um, right there, you have that Michigan background. My father went to Michigan. That's all that was in the house. That's all that was ever talked about. So just developed the love for Michigan, the colors, the tradition, Bo Schembechler. From that, you know, I moved from Atlanta when my mother got remarried. We moved to Atlanta from about to be seven. And then we moved back when I was about to turn 12. So pretty much five years. Give or take, uh, I lived in Atlanta in the country, Lafonia, developed a love for baseball out there. Baseball is huge. I mean, football is major, but baseball is just as big, at least it was back then. So I uh, fell in love with baseball, 
played baseball at a high level, ran track at a high level. And later on, now my dad let me play football when I was 12, when I was 12. And I, I already loved it. I've been playing ever since the crib and playing catch and practicing moves and, you know, Hail Mary to Jerry Rice, you know, that was my guy is Jerry Rice. So always loved football. I had no choice to play football. It was just, it was in my DNA. So you said you grew up in Michigan, your dad went to Michigan, or you knew you were going to Michigan no matter what? I, that was the plan. It didn't, the recruiting didn't happen like that. Uh, Michigan kind of was, I was a late bloomer. Played, um, did, I played, but I played in high school with Martin Luther King in Detroit, which a which was a running school. Didn't necessarily have a quarterback or offensive passing system. For my three years, for my two years there, because I didn't play my freshman year, I played Little League. So I made the transfer to Bishop Gallagher and started picking up some steam, you know, learn how to play football. I grew. I had a five-inch growth spurt, uh, you know, at the end of my junior year. So got size, you know, the skill that I had and went to some camps, did well. Uh, Michigan State offered me, Cal offered me, uh, Vanderbilt offered me, but Michigan still was reluctant. And then finally, uh, I want to say I want to say October of 2000, my senior year, I was at a game on an unofficial recruiting visit and they beat Wisconsin. And Lloyd came into the recruiting lounge and you know, asked me if I wanted to, to attend the University of Michigan. So there's his history. So, so uh, most people would ask you like about some notable games. You had some notable games in your college career. You played in the 2005 Rose Bowl. Um, you know, you had the three consecutive thousand yard receiving season, which I believe today you're still the only player in Big Ten history to do so. Uh, what uh, I'm gonna ask you something a little different. What was it like being like a star player on like a top tier program, like party and shit like that, like recruiting visit when even when you went there? Like, what was that like atmosphere? Right. Uh, so when I was getting recruited or when I was there and I was balling? Uh, both. Start when you were recruited, getting recruited. Best recruiting trip story. Well, I only went to one trip. I only went to, to yeah. Michigan. Like, they kind of put the put the reins and brands watched me not to go anywhere else. And so I didn't take any other recruiting trips. I just went to one in Michigan. Um, got on a fight. Got in a fight with the team. Like, we fought some, I don't know, some frat, some frat house or something like that. And, that was uh that was that was that was cool. It was like instant camaraderie, like instant family. Um, you know, there's some there's some, some some other great stories, man. I, I took care of one of the guys. We went to a strip club and uh he got say he just got inebriated and so I had to I had to drive his car for him on a recruiting trip. I thought that was pretty fun. I met at the time with who I thought was the most gorgeous woman I ever seen in my life. She was a Delta. And I I came back, told her, I was like, just wait, I'll be I'll be here next year. So we can date and we can start the courtship. But it ended up being like another one of the guys on the team's girlfriend and, you know, he was cool about it though. So but those recruiting stories. But once I got there, it was uh it was fun. Uh Michigan's a great school, great academics, great education. It's it's not one of the not one of the better party schools in the Big Ten because you know Wisconsin is crazy, Michigan State is nuts, Indiana is nuts, Purdue isn't bad, but Ohio State is, is is off the chain. But for us, you know, if you don't travel to other college campuses, you don't know that I ran track, so I was able to see firsthand at other institutions. I said, 
Oh, they party party at these other schools. So, but it was fun. Abby, it was fun with the purpose and, you know, it was, it was a good time. It was a great environment. In your recruiting trip, you got in a fight. Did that like set the tone, like coming in, like, yeah, I'm, I'm this guy. No, I don't think it was that guy. Cause it was me. I didn't get into a fight. I was helping the team fight. So they got into a fight and, you know, I'm not going to not fight. Like This is my way to solidify that I'm one of the guys. Like, I got to say early, I don't want to be the guy sitting on the wall watching the fight. And then when I get there, you know, the following fall, they remember like, oh, yeah, that's the guy who was sitting on the wall. That's the guy, yada, yada. So I wanted to be known that I was part of the team ASAP. So I wasn't, I didn't get into a fight. They got into a fight and I joined. You just had their back. That's what it was. And you keep asking the same question. It was like, hey, I got to be a team guy. I got to let them know from jump, this is the tone that I'm on. I'm with the team. I'm for the team. So take me through a little bit. <clears throat> what was your reaction when you got drafted to Cleveland? Because, I mean, Cleveland's not like the glitz and glamour city. Like, you know, I mean, were you just, I mean, obviously you're happy to go, in the, go to the NFL, be a top five pick. But, like, what was your reaction when you got drafted there? Uh, it's bittersweet. You know, it's, it's exciting at first because, you know, you're not thinking about the dynamics that is Cleveland. Like, it's, you know, just not a fun place, especially in terms of being on a team that does not win consistently. So you're just excited. You're off the board. You're third overall. You walked across the stage. I shook Paul Tagli Blue's hand. Uh, everyone saw it. Like, it's, it's a great moment. My family was there. They got to join in the moment with me. But I think slowly but surely, like, chips in the armor, like um, cracks in the armor started to happen. You start to kind of watch it unfold until where you really got drafted. Is there was a blizzard in the in the eastern in the eastern United States of America the day of the draft? Uh, wasn't too bad in New York, but like more so like Pennsylvania, underneath Pennsylvania, et cetera, um, and the Midwest. So the majority of the people, actually everybody that got drafted that was at the draft, Alex Smith to San Fran. Ronnie Brown in Miami, uh, Antero Roll to Cardinals, uh, Cedric Benson to the Bears, rest in peace. And then I think that might, oh, and um, Aaron Rodgers to the Packers. All those teams told the, the, those new draftees that we'll fly you out tomorrow. We don't want to take any chances with the blizzard. Well, Cleveland, they wanted me there ASAP. So they had their jet on the runway. I got in the room, I got on the jet. My mom, a couple people, uh, we flew, and it was the worst ride ever. It's the worst plane ride I've ever taken, especially once we got over Pennsylvania and once we started creeping towards Ohio. It was just bad. And then you land, it's just a blizzard outside. It's a wreck. You can't even really see at the airport. We get into the shuttle. We go over to Berea, which is where the facility is, and it's it's not too far from the airport. Well, actually, not too far. It's like seven minutes. So you get to the facility, and when I walk into where they had the press conference, the media just wasn't friendly. They didn't take to my parents. I think the first question I was asked was, how is it going to be playing in Ohio, being a Michigan guy? I'm like, I play for the Browns. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, that, that chapter's over. And then the next question was a question about my sports car. So instantly you start to see what you've actually been drafted to. And I remember wearing my jersey, wearing like my official jersey I wore, uh, a couple of days later, at a party on campus in Ann Arbor. And I had a jersey on. I was excited. She was still third overall. You know, that's a lot to be said. And <laughs> a bunch of people were like, man, those colors are ugly. And so it was like just at every turn, 
it's like bang. So it was it was a rude awakening quick. Yeah, didn't even ask how the plane ride was. <laughs> yeah, none of that. <laughs> nah, it was it was they were straight to the business of taking shots and just being cold-hearted. Like it was that's the Cleveland media. That's the big difference between New York and Cleveland or other places, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then like, so you got hurt your first year, right? Your rookie year, I believe you got hurt. I got hurt ish because I, I played in 12 games. No, I played in right. Mr. Labs for him. I played in 10 games. Gotcha. But I did get hurt at the end of the season, Tormacia. And then you came back in the following year. Tell us a little bit about it because this, this was like an ongoing thing from this point forward. You started doing a lot of uh, philanthropy work. Um, you gave a five hundred thousand dollars scholarship um, in your second year back to your alma mater, in Michigan, and then also take yes. through the Advance One Hundred program. And what made you want to go back and do those things and give back? So education is kind of what we based the foundation around. Detroit is where I'm from, and they were last in graduation rate. Then I get drafted by Cleveland, and they're third last in graduation rate. So that became a constant thing. So that's the, the way in which we went was education. So the first thing we wanted to do was give back to the University of Michigan and let them know we appreciate the scholarship. And no one had ever done it at the time. So it was kind of like trailblazing. So to do that, to keep the relationship there with Michigan, because you know, that's an institution or a big institution. You're going to need them down the line. You know, you want to be aligned with your institution for the right reason. Um, but also we did side we did two educational scholarships like inner city detroit scholarships so we would do it was eighty thousand dollars a year towards football program scholarship and then it was two ten thousand dollars scholarships per year so technically it was a total of three sponsored people per year one in the football round and then two in the academic round from the inner city detroit and then we just came up with the idea like let's endear ourselves to cleveland which in hindsight I wish I would have done it in Michigan, but we tried. It was a little difficult. Um, so we so we want to endear ourselves in the community, and we also want to give back to the kids. We want to give them an opportunity that they may not have down the road. So we came up with the Advanced 100. We picked 100 kids, and we made them make a promise, and we made a promise to them as well. If you follow by the guidelines of this contract, when we come – and this is when they were in eighth grade. So at the end of the eighth grade year, because we, we read a bunch of – essays and that's how we determine who was going to get the scholarship so once we chose them we made them a deal if they followed the contract to the letter at the end of their four years in high school we would help them with you know the college of their choice uh or help, yeah help them with the college of their choice if they got in <laughs> wherever they got in we were going to help that was the deal awesome. i think that's great um even like the five hundred thousand dollars being a rookie just throwing all that money for a scholarship yeah. But I want to talk about um, your rehab during your first season, you know, tearing your ACL, bonding with Colin Will, uh, Winslow. What was it like, you know, now looking back, hearing all those stories about Winslow? Was it like ra raise any eyebrows? Was it a surprise? I mean, Keller's, and Keller's my brother. Like all the stuff that's happened with him, that's I – don't, I don't know those – Story. I mean, I've seen them. You know, I, I know that some of them are true, but that's not the Kellen I know. So I can't really comment to that. You know, a lot of things happen with players, uh, with anxiety and depression and the mental state of players when they retire, especially if they're they don't retire on their own accord. You know, you just never know. So 
I don't know that Kellen. I just know that Kellen that was a good father, a uh, good husband. Uh, just wanted to win. So, yeah. What about like, and you just men- mentioned like <clears throat> the mental and physical toll and shit like that. What, how far do you think, do you think the game's taking the right precautions now? Like obviously more than ever, they, they've increased the awareness about like CT and things like that. How do you feel about that? You can never really increase the, the aware. I mean, you can't. It's always going to be what it is. It's just players signed up for it, and you know what you're getting yourself into. Like, you can't stop people from getting hit in the head. I don't care how comfortable you make the helmets. Like, it's not going to matter. It's a high-speed impact. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's continuous impact. Players are getting stronger, faster. So the, so as the as the technology gets better, the collisions are getting faster and stronger at the same time. So they're kind of keeping up with the technology in that realm. You know what you're signing up for. You know, so the only thing I can ask is that the NFL takes care of the players after. I think that's the the big thing is taking care of the players, helping them during concussions and situations and not allowing them to be, quote unquote, warriors. And then when they're done playing football, make sure that the health insurance is right. Make sure that if they need this, it's right. Make sure that they're finding ways to slow down you know, the CTE process so that they can do brain exercises, strengthen the mental, et cetera, make sure that's provided. I think that's where the NFL can really help is, is during in terms of taking care of players when they get into concussion protocol, like don't go through a BS test just because you want your player back out on the field. And then to post football, make sure you're taking care of players. Health. Would you, I'm not, I'm not sure if you have any children now, but would you let your kids play football? They wanted to. Yeah. They wanted to. Um, that's their decision. You know, I can prevent it for as long as I can. And then at the right age, the right time, if they still want to play football, then. Because you, because you, you probably didn't allow you to play until you were like 12. So would it be like the same kind of deal around that age? Nah, you don't need to play football at 12 realistically. I, I think personally, you'll know, like, you, you know when you know. Like, you can put them in drills. You can put them in camps. You can do all this stuff that's non-contact. You know if your son's going to be a good football player or a bad football player. Sometimes they're late bloomers anyway. So I think 14, which is your freshman year, like is probably a good year. 13 at the earliest, that gives you a year before you get to college to kind of learn, you know, the ropes, et cetera. But, yeah, you don't have to play football from age 9 to 18 to make it to somebody's institution. There's like rules now that you have to play flag football starting out. Try yeah. to agree with, yeah. Yeah, it's nothing wrong with that. I, I like that. Yeah. So, uh, so after those four years in Cleveland, and you had a, a few more games in Cleveland that fifth year, then you get traded to New York. So, tell me how you were feeling going from Cleveland, like you just mentioned, like the media and how fucking how shitty Cleveland was, and now you go to New York, like greatest city in the world, like the Jets that year. I mean, they had a new coach. They had a lot of energy, young quarterback. Like, how? what were you feeling when you got traded? I like, to be honest, I didn't give a fuck. Like, it was one of those things where it was like, I'm out of Cleveland. I could have gone to Buffalo for all I cared. Like, I was getting out of Cleveland. It didn't matter. So, I was excited. I didn't even – it was so funny. I didn't even stop. It wasn't until, like, I went to Mangini's office. Mangini told me I was straight to the Jets. I It took me everything not to – hooping, hollering in his office. It took me everything to be respectable. So I get out of there, I run downstairs, I grab my stick, I left. I don't even think I said bye to people. Like, I just kind of, like, jumped in the car, woke, got a phone call from my agent. Yo, the Jets are expecting you at 
you know, Cleveland Hopkins International at such and such time. This is your flight information. It wasn't until I actually sat down on the plane, like sat down on the plane and pulled out my my Sony Vio. You know, this is before I had a MacBook. I was in Sony Vio. And I, you know, I'm looking to see what was going on. Then I realized the Jets were three and one. No, they were, yeah, three and one. They had one, I think they won their last three games. I think they lost their first one, three in a row, I want to say. Uh, I saw that Mark Sanchez, I mean, I knew a couple of their players. Kerry Rose is a good friend of mine. Yeah. So I knew Kerry, I knew Jericho. Uh, I played against Nick. Uh, I interviewed DeBrickishaw at the draft. So I knew some of those key pieces. I forgot that Rex had just gotten the job, but I played against Rex for four years um, when he was in Baltimore and I was in Cleveland. So as I'm on the on the on the uh, on the plane on the runway and I'm in my laptop, I'm realizing that this this is about to be an amazing thing. It's not just all right. I'm getting out of Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Wherever I was gonna go, I was gonna make a fresh start. I was gonna do everything the right way. I was just gonna be happy to be there and just work hard. But once I saw the dynamics and the pieces kind of coming together, like before my eyes, before me even getting there, I think I got more and more excited as I got there. Not to mention I've always loved New York. So it was, it was like a match made in heaven, briefly. So before we, before we dive more into to Jess, uh, you mentioned Kerry Rose. I was on that live Instagram you were at talking last week with him. And I was trying to tell him the story about what you were saying about when you flew out to uh, – to Cali to meet Rihanna. Can you take us a little bit through that story? Uh, I had met Rihanna a couple of days before our bye week, for our bye week in 09. Carrie and I went to LA and then went to Vegas for a couple of days. And I met Rihanna, hung out with her um, a couple of days before the, like literally two days before we got to LA. And so hung out with her and met her. We hung out afterwards with a couple of her people at their hotel, at their suite, whatever. And, you know, it was good times, good vibe. And then I and we exchanged numbers, uh, saw, and then I get to a club in L.A. It's a new spot. And she was there. And I guess her bodyguard, who remembered me from two nights before, said, hey, Braylon, what's up, man? I want to let you know Rihanna's over there. So there was this... Magnum bottle of Dom Perignon, I was like, I don't know, like $20,000 bottle. And I guess the person that was supposed to come buy the bottle didn't buy it, or didn't come. So they offered it to us for half that, like 10000 So I told Carrie, I was like, I'll pay seven if you pay three. So we bought the bottle. And then once the bodyguard says that Rihanna's over there, I'm like, all right, well, let's go over there. Carrie stayed. And because I paid seven for the bottle, it was like, well, we're going to bring the bottle with you. We don't want to just leave it. Per se, I think maybe Carrie went over to another table or something. So they bought the bottle with me. I went over there. I tried to get Rihanna's attention. And a manager who was a hater two days before as well kind of like shut it down and was like, no, he can't come in. Rihanna's not even looking. Rihanna's like behind her manager sitting down, chopping it up with one of her friends. And I couldn't get her attention and whatever. So the next day in TMZ, or gossip or whatever it was uh, on the blog sites, they reported that I tried to, I bought her a $10,000 bottle of wine or champagne and she turned it away. She turned me away. And that's not the story. Everybody likes to laugh at it, but I know what really happened. So yeah, that was <laughs> pretty interesting. I got, I got the last laugh though. Well, like, yeah, who, who turned that down? $10,000 bottle. You said what? Who, who would turn down a $10,000 bottle? 
Uh, you see it all the time in that lifestyle. I mean, you know, you, you offering a ten thousand dollar bottle of Rihanna, and she buy her own ten thousand dollar bottle of uh, champagne. So it gets her, but I that was not my my intent. It was I was I was offering her a drink, maybe with <laughs> that. So, so uh, what was it like being in a city with LeBron James? I know you had a little incident with uh, his acquaintance. Right. Uh, I mean, it was cool. I mean, it was. A, it's a small city, so it was like it's. It was weird because LeBron is the biggest thing in the city, and in terms of an individual athlete, but the Browns are the biggest thing in the city in terms of a sport. So it was weird. It's like he's the biggest thing in sport outside of the city, but inside of the city. He wasn't bigger than LeBron, which is crazy. I know it sounds crazy. Even the year, even the year they went to they went to the NBA Finals and got swept by the Spurs, it would have been the 06-07 season. That next season is the season where we won ten games and we were on fire. I think we were seven and one at home. Like you would have think LeBron didn't even play with like which is so crazy because he's the biggest star in you know at the time. Pretty probably like you know, I him. Yeah, Shaq's older at that point. I mean, Kobe was still Kobe, but they weren't winning anymore. So he probably was the biggest thing in sports. Him and A Rod, and he not at home though. So it was it's pretty interesting. Yeah, um, he he made a a very LeBron James comment saying the incident was childish. Did you have any like ill feelings towards him after that or? Never really. at, the the, at the end of the day, I think people get caught on the spot and they just make, you know, they say sometimes before thinking, you got to realize that happened in 09. Because yeah. LeBron is 35 now, right? He'll be 36 this year. I think LeBron's 35. So you look back, that was 09. That was 11 years ago. So essentially, he's 24 years old. You know, he's 24, about to be 25. I think that. That sounds about right, or something like that. He's a young man. He made, you know, made what made a comment without thinking, et cetera. But it just was kind of one of those things where I just gave him a pass. Like, cause I think I gave him a pass ultimately too, because I got traded. So it was like it, to me, everything that happened didn't matter. Like, it was like the fight was over, the comment was over. It was like, why look backwards when what you're the present that you're in is so much better and it's so promising. Like, if I would end up staying in Cleveland, though, like, on the, I would approach that, whole, that situation very differently. If that comment was made, I didn't get traded, and everything was still everything. I wouldn't have been as as vanilla and non-revealing in Cleveland. I would have told what happened, and I would have told I fucked about that comment, too. But, you know, why go backwards? And that was two days before you were traded to the Jets, and you kind of let the story rock. I heard on, like, another interview you were on. You know, there was like a different story to it, right? A different story in terms of what? Punching the local party promoter. Uh, in terms of what the truth was? Yeah. I mean, yes. I mean, basically, he just said, like, I hauled off and hit him and beat him up. You know, poor little innocent him. When in the, in the, the grand scheme of things, him and his four homeboys tried to jump me. And they just... It's not enough. Uh, I threw the first punch, but I'm from a city where four dudes surround you. What are you going to do? You get beat up. And it's kind of funny because something similar happened that year 
in Wisconsin where Monty Ball, who was running back from Wisconsin, got drafted by Vikings. Mm-hmm. I want to say in like '09, uh, he finished third in a, in a Heisman race. I want to say in '08, yeah. he went back to Madison, Wisconsin, and got jumped by three guys. And all you heard was he got beat up by three guys. No charges were filed. Nobody, you know, et cetera, et cetera. All you heard was he got beat up. Had same thing happened to me, but I didn't get beat up. So now I'm I'm the aggressor. I'm the bully. Like the four guys surround you in, in Cleveland on a Sunday at you know eleven forty five outside the nightclub. They're they're not trying to get an autograph. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Um, back now, you come to the Jets. Uh, take it. Tell us about the embrace from the city because I remember when that happened. We were all fired up to get you on the squad and like take us through like. Talking to Rex in the first conversation, meeting Mark Sanchez and those guys for the first time. I knew Rex. Rex was Rex was straightforward. He was cool. Well, he was like, "Hey, we excited to have you here, man. Let's just let's go out there and play ball." He was like, "Man, he liked the physicality. Like whenever we played in Baltimore, like I was I was all on top of Samari Rowland, Chris McAllister, and you know going at their safeties. Uh, I just physical." Mark was cool. He was a young guy. You know, Mark was only 20. Mark wasn't even 21 yet. So a young guy at Cal, one-year starter. Uh, green, and not because he was wearing these colors. Uh, the city, like, the city was cool. I think two things about the city. One, I played the Jets in 07, and I handed Revis his ass. You know, so I balled on Revis. We beat you guys. So you got to see that firsthand. And then two... I just came in and was knocking people out. And I think, the, you know, like, well, especially the Jets. Like, Jets are, to be honest, they're, they're patterned in Long Island. A bunch of, you know, middle-class, tough, tough-as-nails type guys, man. And they like to see someone come in there with that attitude and that fire, like they want to be there, like they care. So I think it was like a match made that had, like, because I didn't have to have the ball in my hand. I mean, you look at my stats. wasn't like Sean Harmon was getting me a ball a lot my first year. Uh, Jets, but again, being that Michigan man, I'm used to watching a running back run the ball all game. So you you learn how to block, how to entertain yourself, and how to help the team. And I think that showed up in film, that showed up in energy, and that showed up in effort. I think that's why, like that whole Rex era. I mean, we that's why, like we as like Jets fans rallied around that because he was blue collar. Like that's how we are. You know what I mean? Like that's the fan base, that's the organization. So. Um, but yeah, no, I think you fit right in with that. But so anyway, you, you, you catch fire. I mean, the team catches fire. You go on a, uh, a run to the AFC championship game. That was your first time in the playoffs, correct? In your career, you didn't go with Cleveland, not in that 10 win season. No, I didn't. That was my first time. So t- tell me a little bit about that 80 yard touchdown you scored for the Jets first points in that game. Uh, what that felt like. It was great. And we set it up really nice because we played them the last game of the regular season. And we set that up on a two-point conversion. We, we ran that play twice. It's a fake run. It's a fake lead, reverse uh, slant pass. It's a, and it's, you know, set up with the run. We ran that twice. When we played them the last game of the season, we ran it once on a, a first down, and then we ran it once on a two-point conversion. <laughs> so, uh, no, I take that back. We ran the actual run. We ran the run twice. It's like a lazy, because it's like a lazy, you know, block move slant. So the first time we ran it in the uh, first Indianapolis game, we ran the ball. 
Second time was on two-point conversion. We ran the slant. So we ran the fake run slant. So we knew, we said, once we get that look, first time we run it, we're going to run the slug up. So slant go on. And so it was the same thing. It was a lazy slant. And they had seen it when we played them last game of the season. But this time we hit them with a slant. And then I went back out and took off. So it was wild. Uh, it was it was great. You know, Jets record touchdown. It was a great feeling, but it was it was short lived, man. Like that game was bittersweet. Like that touchdown was great, but I just to this day I'm still mad at the the mindset that our offensive coordinator and a couple of the, the coaches and players had in that game. Yeah. I mean, I remember we weren't the biggest fan of Brian Schottenheimer uh in his time, but I mean those runs were like <laughs> some of the highlights of my 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 lifetime as a Jets fan. So, um, so take us into going into that offseason. What's the mindset going into that second season with the Jets? You have some time. Like you're going through camp now, and you're going against Cromartie and Revis every day in practice. Like, tell me a little bit about that. Um, what was the belief behind Sanchez in that time too? And just kind of dynamic. Did you guys think like, hey, we, we had a chance. We got something special here. We got a chance to run. Well, brought in San Antonio, and Dustin was getting was growing, and we had specialty players for uh, for. Uh, for Brad Smith. So, and we have Ladanian now with Sean Green. So offense, the, the, the belief in him was high. He had a lot of rounds. We had good offensive line. I mean, he had, you know, borderline great offensive line. We lost uh, Fanica, but, you know, we still was able to fill the role. We had really good offensive line, really good pieces around Mark. So feeling was we trusted him. You bring in Jason Taylor, you bring in, uh, Cromartie. Now you have Crow and you have Revis. Here's what people don't realize, and here's here's one of the downfalls of that defense. They got rid of Kerry Rhodes, and it was, you know, me and Kerry talk about all the time. I know the, the details. That's not important. They just say they got rid of Kerry Rhodes and put out a bullshit story. It was not Kerry. It was them. Kerry allowed Revis to be great. Kerry is the one who taught Revis the offense. I'm mean, talking the defense. He taught Revis how to move in that defense, and he allowed Revis free reign. When you have a free safety that knows everybody's role, that like he was, a, he called the defense for the most part. Him and Dave Harris they switched. So you have a guy that knows the defense code. He, I mean, he knows the offense. He knows what you're going against. He allowed Revis to have those. Like if you look at that year in '09, Revis never had another year like '09. Yeah. Like, and that's because Kerry, he was able to step out, become himself. Kerry helped him do that. They get rid of Brevis. They bring in Brian Poole, who's a former teammate of mine. We got drafted the same year. Cleveland, I was first. He was second. I love Brian. Athletic-wise, Brian Poole is one of the most athletic people I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have Kerry's mind, and he couldn't do the things that Kerry did. So I think that's what was lacking. Because if you notice, we were – supposed to be we were built as this great defensive team because the year before we were the year before defense and the running game got us to the AFC championship and that's no debate defense and the running game that next year defense gave up points here and there they they were doing things that were uncharacteristic of what they had done before mm-hmm. so I think I think Kerry was that that missing cog on defense in the 2010-11 season that ultimately, I'm not going to say cost us, you know, but I think things would have been different. Yeah. It's my thoughts. 
Because you look at the, the production from the secondary position, from the secondary in 09-2010 versus 2010-11. Big difference. Gotcha. And what was like, what was the feeling for that team overall? You guys thought you had something special aside from, you know, losing Kerry Rhodes. Like, Rex was fired up. I mean, he was firing up the media. He was all about that shit, like firing up New York media and everything. So what was your guy? We knew he had something special because, like, we had a we had a good group of guys that, you know, everybody just wanted to win. Like, I think everybody was in that space where the nucleus was together. Like, you know, it's New York. You know, people were doing their own thing, but for the most part, there weren't egos in that scenario. You know, it was like our right, come together do this. We had a coach that believed in that we rock with. You know, we you know we we rock with we rock with Rex. You know, we want the win for Rex. So that was good. And then we had momentum. We had hard knocks. We had all that stuff. The glitz, the glamour. Uh, even with the distraction, I mean, we still were eleven and five, and should have won. To be honest, you know, we sh- shouldn't lost to the Dolphins. We shouldn't lost to the Vikings, and we shouldn't lost to the Ravens. We should have been fourteen and two. And that's not a typical. Someone tells you you should be fourteen and two. You should be. We should have been fourteen and two. Like we lost to, we we lost to the Patriots, and that was it. We gave all those other games up. Like we gave the the Bears game, we gave away the Dolphins game. I don't know how the hell he beat us. We, the Ravens game, they didn't even score. The, uh, the Green Bay Packers, I don't think they scored a touchdown, and neither did the. So it was like we gave a bunch of games away. That was the. The Patriots game where you guys lost like forty five to three, right? You guys got like they they yeah <laughs> tough loss. But like I remember that was the only one of the year where I was really like, damn, like you guys really got outplayed. Like every other game, you guys like you know like you said. So um, and then take us a little bit into that that playoff, right? I mean, you guys that road was crazy. You had to go through Indianapolis, right? You guys got beat in the world. You squeezed by that one. And now you're going to Foxborough. So, like, t- tell me now. You guys lost them 45-3 to early in the year. What's, like, the, the feeling going into Foxborough after that, that win? But we beat them at the beginning of the season, and we knew that that wasn't us. They had a, they had a series of plays early in that game. Like, in sports, sometimes it's just, just not your night. Like, don't get me wrong. There were some things that I don't like about Schottenheimer's offense, but then again, I never did. But I just never said anything out loud. But once again, you learn from your mistakes in the past. But that was just one of those nights. Man, it was like fluke plays and turnovers and shit just going. You you can just see it, and you can just see guys like, you know what? That is is we're we're still in a good space because we were nine and two. We both were nine and two at that point. They were nine and two, and we were nine and two or nine and one. I can't remember. We both were nine and two or nine and one. Uh, you can just see guys like, look, we'll be nine and three when this is over. We just got to recoup, get back to the drawing board because this, this is just not our night. It's, it's just not our night. And that's kind of what, one of those things. I mean, it sucks. It was one of those things where it was like, nah, not, not, not tonight. We, we just knew we could beat them. We just knew we had a, a random night that was just a bad night. We beat them uh, the second game of the season that year. We knew what we had. We believed in ourselves. Nobody believed in us. Like, it was nothing special about that Patriots team. Like, there was nothing special about them. Like, you know, so it was 
beat these guys going in like and the score is no and you guys watched it you guys were young but you guys remember it in detail the score is not an implication of the game I think because his final score is what 28 21 that that's no implication of that game that game was an asshole from start to finish <laughs> no yeah you guys you guys jumped out early and I remember I mean that touchdown you caught too was probably I didn't realize it at the time but it was probably be my highlight as a Jets fan in the last 15 years of my life so that's probably like Point. And then you guys go into Pittsburgh. What what happened in that first half? Like when you guys were down twenty-three, like you just you said, like you said before, is it just one of those those things where just you guys weren't clicking that in that first half? Because if one thing changed in that first half, you guys probably would have won that game. You guys came out and were balling in the second half. No, what happened was the same thing that happened in the first damn AFC Championship game with Brian Schottenheimer. So we played the Pittsburgh Steelers. We played them, mind you, four weeks before that. One, two, three, four, five. We played them five weeks before that in at Heinz Field, and we beat them. Like, it wasn't a close game. It was an ugly game, but it wasn't close. Beat them. Troy Palomalu's Achilles was messed up, and he didn't play in the game, and he just hurt all year. He's always hurt towards the end of his career because, you know, he went so hard. But they threw the ball to myself a lot. I had, I played, I had one-on-one coverage the whole game. So I think I had 118 or 120 that game, something like that. A lot of big first downs. The next time we played him, Troy Palomalu plays. He's he is he is less than a shell of himself. That's the level he was playing at. And Schottenheimer changed the complete offense. We went away from what we did, and he tried to do things that would not work. And lo and behold, I had one catch. It was a fourth down at the end of the game when we finally scored. I caught the fourth down on like fourth and five, fourth and six, and then Jericho scored the next play. One one throw the whole game. Like he tried to appease and change it up, and he out funk himself. Yeah, he he out funk himself. My apologies. There you go. And then um, yeah, no, I mean, so. And did you, you said you talked to Mike DeVito like recently too. Did you talk to him about that safety he had in that game too? Did you talk about that at all? Did you guys talk about that game at all? Just out of I, I, no, we, we did not. We were it was very surface though. Yeah. Gotcha. So um uh after the two seasons with the Jets, actually, you know, let me ask you this, because I I'd spoken with someone who was on those teams. Um I don't wanna like drop his name or anything, but he told me that he was an offensive line. When you guys were in that huddle, like a lot of the veteran guys anyway, were very like, like, yo, like Mark, like can't fuck this up. Would you, would you say that was that was true in, in terms of you guys were worried about Mark Sanchez as a liability or not? Talking about what in the Pittsburgh game? In general, in those playoff runs. Because he said, he had mentioned to me that there was a lot of veterans and they thought like this could be like our last go round at this. And... I think year one, but year one we didn't pass the ball a lot, and then they had the they had the whole color system, you know. So yeah, maybe the first year, second year, you know, it was like we we had success. We knew what we could do. You had Santonio, you had myself, you had Jericho, you had Ladanian. So I wouldn't put it on Mark that that second year. I would put it on the coaching staff. I didn't leave. They didn't bring me back. It was up to it was between me and Santonio Holmes. And to be honest, they could have got both of us. But uh, Santonio's agent is, is was good friends with Mike Tannenbaum. They both are of a certain variety, and that variety tends to sit together. 
Uh, and they pick Santonio over me. They pay him with 27 mil, like 27 guarantees, like nine per year. When they could have structured it, they could have structured it totally different and kept both of us, to be honest. Because nobody, that was, a, that was a strike year. I mean, a lockout year. Nobody was paying, nobody was paying that high. They could have structured it and paid us both seven. I would have took the seven and stayed. I love New York. I love the team. I love the vibe. I love the coach. So they didn't bring me back. So I was going to end up signing a deal uh, with the Cardinals. Uh, I, I was like actually broken a deal with Kerry Rhodes and John Lyle, who was a conditioning coach, who had me in Cleveland. And it was, it was going to be, it was going to go well. And then, you know, an incident at a nightclub in Detroit with uh, my friends. I got looped into it because they were with me. I had nothing to do with it. I was in it. And I was there. And once that happened, Arizona pulled the deal, and then I had to take the deal in San Fran. And then, you know, you, you spent some time there, then Seattle, and then uh, you even came back to the Jets for a short period of time before uh, that season. But um, take us a little bit through your stuff off the field, some of the stuff you've been doing, like the, the COVID thing you got going on now. I know you're a big advocate for mental health and substance abuse. Take us a little bit through what's going on outside of now beyond football. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I'm working in the space of mental uh, health, mental illness, uh, addiction, awareness, and trauma, PTSD for about the last two years, two, three years. And a lot was being made of uh, first responders as it related to doctors, nurses, people in the hospital, the hospital staff. And a lot of the clinics that I go to to speak to addicts or clinicians or a lot of these wellness groups that I go to to approach mental illness and a lot of these conferences that I speak at, you know, these places still have nurses and clinicians on the front line. They're still working 24 hours a day or some of them 24 hours a day, 24 hour shift, double shifts and seven days a week. So not a lot of light was being shed uh, for PPE for them. So I said, you know, I got to get off my butt and do something. Like I was going live a lot and I was noticing that people were trying to, you know, check the live where they were coming to hang out. So I said, with that being said, I was like, I might as well use the format. So work, I got together with Happiness to Others who reached out to me. They're a, virtual, they're a virtual fundraising group. And they presented a contest. Like, I guess what they do is they do contests where you take one athlete versus another athlete and you, you know, you rev them up, try to battle back and forth, and then you raise money for your charity, the charity of your, of your, uh, your choosing. Well, I said, why don't we just do me? And then I raised money for PPE in the Michigan recovery community. And then you matched that. So what they did was they said, okay, cool. We'll match the donations that are given, which have been really good so far. I'm really, uh, really happy and really thankful uh, to people that have donated. Uh, and then the NFL came on board yesterday and said, well, whatever they match, we'll match the total number. Like, so when it's all said and done, they're going to match the total number. So, just try to do our part, man. Like, you know, you can you can sit around and complain and do whatever, man. There are people that are out there risking their lives, you know, life and limb daily. So I'm just trying to try to honor them and do my part. Great week, man. Great. You know, utilizing Zoom, you know, all this type of platforms. You I was reading something too about it when I when I was on the page. You're you're going there's something about you going in the front lines with them or something like that, too? Next Wednesday, yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Like, what are you going to be doing? Uh, just providing uh, 
test kits as well as food out in Monroe, Michigan, which is probably about uh, about 50 minutes from my house. Uh, that's where my mentor and the company that I work with, that's where they live at. But uh, we're going to a clinic, methadone clinic out there and providing some some drive-through testing. And also we're going to a shelter after that to provide some meals for some people that are struggling uh, during this quarantine and COVID-19. So, I mean, it's, it's a scary situation, uh, but I put it in the hands of God and you know, I'm going to roll down there and do my part. You know? Awesome. Uh, talk, talk to you about your, your first book, Doing It My Way, you know, the, the feedback and if you're, you know, wanting to do, write any more books. Uh, it was, it's good. You know, I talked about basically everything we, we said and it, it covers that and some other stuff. But uh, it was cool. It was interesting. It you know, gave me a perspective on what people like, you know, what people don't like. Also, thinking about writing another one, I think I will. I think I have a, I think I have a category already in mind for writing the second book. Uh, it was fun. Uh, and the thing about writing a book that's cool is you can keep representing the book. Like, the book came out in August. Here we are, uh, soon to be made. You can represent the book a couple different ways. Like, now it's quarantine. Now it's COVID. Hey, it's a great read, you know. Um, the book deals with a lot of mental health and wellness issues. You can represent that when you go to these conferences and you you bring the book as well and you sell the book. Uh, it's just different subject matter in that. So, uh, you know, when I go some, now I talk to kids a lot of times in high school, and we deal with bullying. Bullying is in the book. I think that's the thing that I learned is how many times you can represent a concept if you have different subject matter within the pages. So that's been like the cool thing. Is, is there any other like endeavors and things you want to get into that you plan on getting into in the future? Uh, later on down the line, but I'm pretty locked and loaded in what I'm doing right now. I'm pretty happy, pretty locked and loaded. I may probably get back into broadcasting, but right now I'm, I'm locked and loaded in this. And my mission is, my yeah. mission and passion are intertwined. I wanted to ask, uh, how, how's your relationship with Jim after that, that feud you had back in, uh, what was it, 2018? Uh, you know, he's a head coach of Michigan, so I always got respect to head coach of Michigan, and his job is to win games. So yeah, he goes, he, he wins games, and I'm happy. So when that happens, I'll be happy. Yeah. That's good. Right. So I, we'll wind down now because uh, you gave us more than enough time, but I just want to ask you thoughts on uh, the Jets draft this year, what you think uh, about Denzel Mims in the second round. To be honest, I, I, once I start working for the network, I kind of stop paying attention to talent all the way around. Like, if you're not – if you don't play for Oklahoma or Alabama, LSU, you know, the Final Four or the Big Ten, like, I'm kind of, like, lost. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, I would have to watch some film and check out check out the guys. So, I mean, Jets seem pretty happy with him, But, sorry, my dog is already barking at the door. So, I don't know. I got to watch the film and see, man. Yeah. So do you do you like? I mean, do you go back and you root for the Jets now? Like being that you you spent so like some of your best years through that was is that some of your some of you? I'm a Jets fan, but the Jets haven't been good, so it's kind of hard to go out of my way to watch them. Like I have the red. See, I I have the red zone package. So how I watch football is I watch football on the red zone package. So like through the course of a Sunday, I watch the red zone package like all day. That's how I see what goes on. And then I watch the Sunday game of the night. And then I watch Monday night football and I watch Thursday night football. So if it's in the midst of that, then I can, you know, check them out. But every once in a while, I tune in. Like when the Jets are playing the Patriots, I watch. 
Yeah. I was actually supposed to be at that game at home this past year. Yeah. And I watched when they played the Patriots, and I watched them when they played the Dolphins. Yeah. I was at that game when they this year on uh, this Monday night game. I think they got their ass. Yeah, it was Monday night. I was, it was part of Legends community, and I was gonna go. The last minute something came up. I think I had an appearance, uh, a conference to speak at that that Monday. And so I didn't want to chance it because I hadn't been in New York in a while. You're talking about going out after the game, Monday football. So I just took on own self to be true. And I'm glad I didn't go because that was. I think we left like, we left the halftime. We might have left right before halftime. It was bad. We're getting an ass kick. I just didn't like how I, I didn't like how Adam Gates handled the situation with Sam Darnold. Like he kind of left him out there yeah. to fend for his own. Like one time, I think he made a comment like he thought he saw a ghost. Like it was like if you don't want to pull him for his confidence, it's one thing. But you can hand the ball off for the rest of the game. You don't have to continue to try to pass the ball from the freaking two yard line. You have any? Like, thoughts, was, you have any thoughts about Adam Gates? I, I mean, like I know New York's. I'm not personally a fan. I know a lot of New Yorkers are, a lot of Jets fans are. The media kills him over here. But I follow, I follow some football, not all. So I know that they didn't like him in Miami. Uh, so you know, but you know, NFL, they, they just keep giving people chances. Certain people, that is. You know, I don't think he's a good coach, but what do I know? But tap out on you guys, man. I don't know. All right, man. Yeah, man. Appreciate yeah, coming appreciate on. Uh, this is dope. Um, if you want to tell people where they can find that, where to donate, how long it's going to be up for, too, so we could get that out there, that'd be awesome, too. But um, yeah, man. Yeah, just click the link in my bio. Tell them click the link in my bio, my Instagram handle, or my Twitter handle. Twitter is official Braylon. My Instagram is I am the different 17. All right, 17, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, uh, I definitely love to promote that book as well. Yeah. You know, with the mental health issues going on right now so that'd be awesome but uh yeah bro i, I really appreciate you coming on taking the time to talk to us but uh it's been awesome oh yeah no problem man thanks bro you need to slow down baby my whole team catch them low down baby i'm a hero in my hometown baby stop talking just go down baby shit on my chest true colors like a care bear all year see me tan hopping out the van you wasn't there now you trying to show faith fuck around be a cold case Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big-